Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We're focused on providing Ukraine the capability that it needs to be effective uh, in its upcoming uh, anticipated uh, counteroffensive in the spring. And so we're doing everything we can to get them the capabilities that they need right now to be effective on the battlefield. There you go. As we near the one-year anniversary of the start of this war, February 24th, if you remember that date, uh, President Vladimir Putin coming out uh, on Thursday, evoking the spirit of the Soviet army that defeated Nazi German forces at Stalingrad. So he's referring to old Stalingrad is what he wants to do, declaring that he's going to defeat Ukraine, which uh, he, of course, says is in the grips of this new incarnation of Nazism. And so he warned Germany specifically, but it was a warning, I think, to NATO alliances that he is prepared to draw on Russia's entire arsenal, including its nuclear weapons. And um, Russia has, in fact, amassed a pretty massive 500,000 troop buildup and what is thought to be an imminent attack. And the rationale? Well, Putin can't be further embarrassed with uh, tanks and troops getting stuck in the mud, remember, of the spring thaw or the beginning of the thing. Uh, but he also has to make a move before all these new weapons start showing up with these leopard tanks. Let's get uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht into the conversation. He's a professor over at the Royal Military College of Canada, expert on security and defense, also author of about 20 books. And uh, what's your latest, uh, Professor? Uh, Polar Cousins, Antarctic and Arctic Geostrategic Futures, where, of course, the Russians have a major role to play on both the Antarctic and Arctic and meddling in global stability. Yes. So that is why it is always so very relevant to us. Let me um, ask you about this. So Putin comes out and I'm sure he's just playing to domestic or his own uh, audiences because he's not handled this war very well. But what do you take away from his message and what we're going to see in the next uh, little bit? Well, I think the initial lesson we need to take is we need to be cautious about anything that Putin is pushing in terms of a narrative. You recall, of course, that around this time last year, there was much of the narrative about Russia having amassed 200,000 soldiers and that Russia was going to crush Ukraine and the Ukrainians wouldn't stand a chance. Uh, And of course, the Ukrainians proved otherwise. So I think we need to make sure we don't inadvertently play into the hands of Putin's narrative. Uh, This is a carryover from Soviet times. The Soviets have always been very effective at active measures or setting narratives and trying to tell the story their particular way, both to their domestic audience and international audience. Uh, And this is, of course, part of psychological warfare. You want to intimidate allies, you want to intimidate Ukraine. Um, But I think there's no doubt that uh, Putin is going in for on round two, and that because he's, as you point out, likely only going to get one more serious shot at this before qualitatively significantly higher offensive weaponry shows up in Ukraine from Western allies and the Ukrainians start to use that, uh, this is, uh, he's going to go all in on this round. Yeah, which begs the question, I mean, um, you know, Germany has been very resistant to signing off on allowing Leopard uh, tanks to go in from NATO allies, and, and they take a while to get there, so it's not expected that they'll be there for a couple of more months, unless, um, you know, NATO allies kind of around 
uh, Ukraine have access to them, can send them. But um, the firepower, I think, that uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky needs is still a long way off. And so for Putin, he's got to do it before those arrive. Yes, so certainly I think um, operationally there is now significant duress on Putin to move and to move quickly. This is, of course, part of the strategy here. Don't give the Russians enough runway to actually train up their troops and to re-equip and resupply their troops and rebuild their supply lines. Force them into making moves and making moves quickly in the hopes that you can capitalize on the disarray in their command and control structure, mm-hmm. uh, on the demoralized force that he's working with, and on making sure that he don't really have uh, well-trained soldiers to, uh, to contend with. But it's not just, I think, Germany's reticence. This is overall a significant shift in Western posture, because so far the West has, by and large, provided weapons that are more on the defensive nature. Tanks are clearly meant to give Ukraine an offensive capacity, a significant offensive capacity, but not so much. uh, And I think this was clearly a political decision, probably driven not just by countries such as Germany, but my guess is quietly by countries such as Canada, to provide enough to signal deterrence to Putin that Ukraine will have the equipment to defend itself and to make some inroads operationally but not enough to humiliate Putin so as not to escalate the situation. So uh, providing sort of too little to Ukraine to be really uh, significantly change the dynamics on the battlefield, but enough to signal to Putin that um, he cannot achieve his political objective uh, through military means. Well, he can't, but but he's also not going to go down um, without, uh, like, I, 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 he strikes me as the kind of guy that it's all, like, if he has nothing to lose, he's just going to go out in, in a blaze of glory, and he could cause a lot of problems. I mean, people kind of look at, or you hear some describe Russia as, you know, well, they've been weakened, it's been embarrassing, but they still have a massive amount of military power. Uh, yes, I mean, significantly depleted. Certainly their land force has depleted in capabilities by about 50% over the last year. Um, but uh, as you point out, Russia is a large country with significant resources. And those people have always been told they need to make these sacrifices for uh, what Putin calls the fatherland, but what really is sort of political elites with uh, whose ambitions simply don't match uh, their military and industrial capabilities. Uh, but not to underestimate, I think, uh, Putin's ambitions. But we also need to put Putin's ambitions in historical context. This is, of course, how Russia has behaved towards its neighborhood for 400 years. And so this is not just about um, deterring Putin. It is also about containing uh, whoever and whatever comes after Putin, whether that's uh, after mm-hmm. Uh, dies or uh, if he's overthrown. So sort of this hope that all we need to do is get rid of Putin and the situation will be much better. Uh, I think people will want to be careful what they wish for. Yeah, or he'll fall out a window. Um, just wanted to kind of ask you, because I've got you and I know that you know this stuff, uh, this Chinese balloon that everyone is talking about, that was, uh, I think it was spotted by Canadian intelligence. Um, but nonetheless, it is a concern. What do you make of it? I mean, we know they're not sightseeing. Yeah, so I mean, NORAD would have spotted this over the Aleutian Islands when the balloons sort of first would have entered our airspace. This is their job to make sure we identify and track anything on our airspace. It's interesting that it only gets reported now that it's entered U.S. continental mainland airspace. It did not get reported when it entered the Arctic airspace or Canadian airspace for that matter. Uh, And I think that's because simply people were spotting it from the ground. So it was 
I think the DOD had to put out some sort of statement. This is not the first time uh, that China has sent this type of balloon. This, is, of course, goes back to World War One. They're very effective surveillance mechanisms. You can keep them over a site for an extended period of time. But I think it's also, on the one hand, a signal the extent to which our adversaries are going with unmanned aerial systems, with underwater systems to intrude into our sovereign airspace, the extent to which they're prepared to go to collect intelligence on us. But also, this is the Chinese just poking a finger into our eye and saying, look, we're overtly spying on you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Well, what could they, I mean, what could Joe Biden do? I mean, he warned them and said, don't do that, but what, what could you do? It's like you shoot it down. You can't do that either. Yeah, I think the Americans likely made a strategic decision to keep it up, um, uh, to try to understand probably what exact intelligence the balloon is collecting and who exactly is collecting that intelligence. So where are the signals going back? Who's trying to collect this? Um, so there's a lot to be learned by tracking the balloon rather than just taking it out of commission. Um, and so uh, so I think the, the but it, it shows that our, look, the only reason you would spy on the continent itself is if you have intent to either disable our, for instance, uh, nuclear strike capability, our extended deterrent, or if you have intent to strike targets on the continent. And so it needs to be a signal to all of us that especially our government needs to be less lethargic in terms of reinvesting in continental defense because our uh, security is clearly under threat when a Russian balloon, can, uh, sorry, a Chinese balloon unobstructed uh, can enter our airspace and linger over extremely sensitive uh, nuclear extended deterrent strike capabilities in Montana. Yeah, it would be nice if they started to pay attention. All right, Professor, very much appreciate your uh, time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Take care. You too. That is Professor Christian Luprecht. He has a new book out. If you're interested, you can actually Google it and download it. It is there. It's called uh, Polar Cousins, Antarctic and Arctic Geostrategic Future. Just rolls off your tongue, right? But nonetheless, uh, you know, he writes about very current and relevant, you know, issues that uh, don't get talked about a lot, but are very much, very much uh, within uh a threat of us, including Russia, which has 18 bases in the Arctic, and we have none. They are all set to go, should they need to or want to, uh, but we don't. So that is Polar Cousins, Antarctic and Arctic Geostrategic Future. And you can get that, uh, just go to Google and download.